This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, the employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, let's get paid. What's good, fam? This is your host, Jim Pruitt, a.k.a. Farm D in the ED, and I'm bringing you another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. This is going to be of our Keeping Up With COVID uh, series, and we have the special, special guest with us, and I have my super special co-host with us today. So go ahead, my co-host, go ahead and introduce yourself for the audience. Yeah, thank you, Jimmy. Uh, my name is Oscar Santalo, pharmacy operations manager at University of Florida Health in Leesburg. And listen, we do have a special guest today. I'm psyched. Let, let's go. Go ahead and introduce yourself, special guest. Hi, uh, thank you, Oscar. Thank you, Jimmy. I am special guest, uh, Theora Canonica. I'm the inpatient infectious diseases pharmacist at the San Francisco VA, and I'm so excited to be here. All right, let's do it. So you know how we do here at Farm So Hard. Let's jump right into this. So I'm going to give a little backstory. We are over a year into this pandemic, and we have not one, no, actually just one FDA-approved medication for the treatment of COVID-19, and that is remdesivir. And the purpose of this episode is not for me to sit here and flap my gum, but to briefly review the role of remdesivir in the treatment of COVID with a focus on the real-world application in this post-EUA era. So as we get into this, I cannot say anything else probably that's going to sound intelligent to our audience. So I'm not going to try. I'm not going to try. This is not the ED. You know, I literally can't do it. Can you please give us a little background and talk about the mechanism of action? Because I still don't know. And I've verified probably like 200 of these over the last year. (laughs) Yeah. I will love to talk about that. So yes, remdesivir, our one uh, COVID-specific drug for which we have the FDA approval for. So this drug actually is a prodrug, fun enough. It's actually a drug that looks very similar to adenosine, which is one of your uh, DNA building blocks. You may remember from like biology class. So basically what it does is it looks like a piece of DNA and The prodrug is metabolized by the liver once it's infused into the body. And the activated form of remdesivir essentially goes inside the cell that's been affected by the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And what it does is it stops the virus from replicating. And it does that because it looks similar enough to a DNA molecule that the virus needs. And so the virus picks it up, tries to incorporate it into its growing RNA strain, and that essentially stops the whole viral replication process. Cool. That's like, it's just basically it's a dummy trick. It's like the, the old children yeah. horse. He's like, ah, I yes. got you. You thought this was DNA, but this is a way to kill yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so suicide. I, I've heard that this is not like a brand new drug and it does have some history prior to its COVID-19 use. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that it was used prior to COVID is really what helped speed up the FDA approval because we had data going all the way back to 2014. So in 2014 to about 2016, that's when there was a big outbreak of Ebola in the African continent, specifically in West Africa. And so at that time, remdesivir was used as a way to combat the Ebola virus. Then in the beginning of the pandemic, um, 
investigators started looking at remdesivir against the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which for which it had activity. And as early as May 2020, we got the first EUA approval to use remdesivir in specifically in hospitalized patients with severe COVID infection. And so later, about three months after that, when there's more trials looking specifically at remdesivir in COVID patients, the EUA was expanded to include essentially all hospitalized patients with COVID, which is why you verified probably countless prescriptions at this time. It's anyone who's hospitalized, basically, it's okay to give remdesivir per the EUA at that time. And then two months later, in October of 2020, the FDA approved remdesivir for the use of uh, remdesivir in hospitalized patients with COVID-19 for adults and pediatric patients. And so now it's everywhere. Absolutely. And yeah. now that COVID went down, it's like, I don't see the orders as much, but anytime I see a patient that gets admitted, I think it's like the admit button for a patient is right beside the remdesivir button. So it's like, oh, hey, I'm calling you. Have you done remdesivir yet? It's like, yeah. I might as well just put it in the Pixis machine or yeah. can they push it? Can yeah. they just like, no, don't do that guys. That's a joke. Yeah. That would be it. <laughs> but one thing me and Oscar like to talk about quite a bit here, and I think it's going to be very key when it comes to COVID is the practice of evidence-based medicine compared to emotion-based medicine. And there's been a lot of emotion-based medicine and we've jumped on board with tons of therapies because it's the cure for COVID. It's the best thing in the world. Can you summarize some of the key studies uh, re regarding remdesivir? Yeah, absolutely. And, and honestly, the, the emotional impulse to give the patient literally everything is very, very real in this particular disease state. And it still is. And so yeah, reviewing the literature from Rosier, let's do that. So I picked four key trials that I kind of wanted to talk about that I think are worth knowing when you think about remdesivir, how it was approved and how we use it now. And so the first trial is the ACT trial, which may be called ACT-1 now that there's ACT-2, but it was published in New England Journal of Medicine in 2020. And this was the first really big trial looking at remdesivir in, uh, in the early pandemic. And so the investigators were comparing remdesivir versus placebo, which is basically standard of care, which was a hodgepodge of stuff at the time. And so what they showed is that the patients that got remdesivir, the antiviral, were able to recover by about, on average, like five days sooner than patients that didn't get it. So again, this is the era where we didn't have a vaccine. We didn't really have anything to give patients. So yes, they recover sooner. Let's give them remdesivir. What's interesting about ACT also is they did a, an ad hoc analysis looking at, well, who benefits the most? And they found in this trial that patients that required supplemental oxygen actually it improved, uh, had the, the best benefit. So that's the key from ACT. So remdesivir better than nothing. And it did the best in patients that required oxygen above their baseline. Then after that, we started looking not so much at like saturated, like O2, but we started looking at, okay, well, like how do we give remdesivir? And so the next two trials, the, the first one by uh, Wang and colleagues that was published in the Lancet of 2020 was looking at adults with severe COVID. So this is at the time when the EUA was for severe COVID. And again, they're comparing remdesivir versus placebo. And they saw a very similar thing. The patients, again, improved quicker when they were given remdesivir. If it was given within 10 days of having symptom onset, which I think is a key to take away from that trial, um, because in the pathogenesis of COVID very early on, like your mild to moderate stage, and even like patients that just convert into that kind of severe COVID realm, the biggest underlying issue is the virus is unchecked. 
when you start getting into like your later COVIDs, your critically ill COVIDs, you're seeing more of an inflammatory process start to take over from the immune system going haywire. So what's key from this trial here is not only that they're severe, but you're catching them early and those patients benefit from, from remdesivir therapy. After that, we have a trial by Spinner and colleagues that was published in JAM of 2020 also. that was looking at patients with moderate COVID, so not as severely ill as the previous study. And they were looking at, okay, if I give them five days of remdesivir or 10 days of remdesivir or standard of care, does that affect COVID outcomes? And what they found is that patients that were given five days of COVID demonstrated significant clinical step improvement in terms of like their clinical status by day 11 versus the standard of care, which was later. So again, it was showing these patients get better faster when they get as little as five days of remdesivir. And when they compared five days versus 10 days of remdesivir, they found there really wasn't a difference. So this is where the literature really comes, it starts coming into play for that five day duration for remdesivir, showing that maybe this is all patients need where they're going to show a benefit. And then the last one to really drive that point home is one by Goldman and colleagues in New England Journal of Medicine of 2020 that was specifically comparing five days of remdesivir versus 10 days. And again, they found very similar times to clinical improvement between the two groups. It was 10 days with five days of remdesivir versus 11 with 10 days. Again, showing that the duration of remdesivir really isn't what's driving the patients getting better. If you go back to that Wang study, it's when you start remdesivir really in, in the patient's disease course that I think is a real key takeaway for remdesivir. It's not just everybody who comes in the hospital. It's you want to give it early on. And really the duration is not making a giant impact based on these studies. And these are some of the key trials that led to the FDA approval. All right. That's phenomenal. So it just seems like we need to go ahead and get these things up front. And that's probably why I've seen so many patients receive this in the ED. And mm-hmm. we've really you know, I'm fortunate to work at two facilities and we've definitely streamlined the process in both of those areas to get remdesivir to the ED as soon as it is clinically indicated. So we have the studies that are saying this and everyone's been talking about the CDC and what their recommendations are. But I think anyone who practices in ID, they know the gold standard, the gold standard. As soon as I say to a provider, well, the IDSA guidelines, it's like, oh, okay. You can, you can do whatever they say. In NIH, you know, you, you say NIH and IDSA, that's big. So what are those two large organizations filled with very, very smart people? What are their recommendations for the use of remdesivir in hospitalized patients? And that's an excellent question because really it's what the guidelines say. That's what we do most of the times. And so thankfully, we've had two groups, the IDSA and the NIH, who've been actively updating these COVID guidelines the entire time and remdesivir included. And comparing the two, they they kind of say the same thing. There are some nuanced differences between the two. And so I'm going to break down basically kind of where, what they say overall, where they kind of differ. And so overall, they're basically saying hospitalized patients, obviously with COVID-19, but they want you to definitely give it to people who are having really an, an issue with oxygen saturation. And so the cutoff from the IDSA is to definitely give it to patients who have a O2 saturation, like 94% or less on room air. Whereas NIH doesn't really specify that hard and fast SpO2 criteria, but they say you kind of consider it in patients who look like they're about to start to progress into needing supplement oxygen. And if they need supplemental oxygen, definitely give it to them. So that's kind of what they recommend. So patients that need supplemental oxygen, for sure. Whereas IDSA really specifies like if they're struggling on room air, you might want to start giving this drug. Because again, timing is really key when you're seeing a benefit of this, of this drug. 
Where things kind of get weird is when you're talking about critical COVID. So those are like your ICU patients, patients on mechanical ventilators, ECMO, septic shock. And, and both the guidelines really recommend starting remdesivir in those patients. They want you to give it before they get there, essentially. But this is where emotional medicine comes into play. If you didn't start it, most of the times they're going to get this anyway. So it's kind of one of those recommendations where it's really wishy-washy with how they word this. But the goal is really to give it as soon as you can with a COVID patient. And that's consistently what these guidelines say. Perfect. So you've basically summarized all of that. And it's great to have the guidelines, have the studies. And it seems that we pretty much have a, a decent grab on remdesivir right now. Uh, but I thought it was pretty interesting. Most of the institutions started to look at their use of remdesivir. And I really want to hear more about like the real world evaluation of remdesivir because I'm pretty sure sometimes we use it correctly, sometimes we didn't. And Oscar, I really want to just figure out, you know, do you, have you uh, reached out to people who's been using this that have done some different reviews to talk more about the real world application of remdesivir? So I think why some people still like me is because I'm pretty resourceful. I have, so through the black market, I was able to get my hands on a remdesivir MUE. A medication use evaluation, essentially just auditing the prescription or the ordering practices to make sure they're appropriate, as well as just seeing any trends and outcomes and stuff, because there's so much variability as to those studies. Because the only real indications that we had was based off of SpO2 less than 94 or patients requiring supplemental oxygen and also like theorkip hitting on the head, you know, symptom onset, right? To see if there's any trends. Um, because one of the things that my bone to pick with the studies was that, you know, they didn't really look at eradication of the virus. So it's really just all based off of that 28 day outcome, which was, it's consistent through pretty much majority of the studies. So we got our hands on an MUE and it evaluated patients during the EUA and after the EUA. Uh, patients that were hospitalized. And these patients were stratified in two groups, patients with the SpO2 of less than 94 compared to patients that required supplemental oxygen. And in this MUE, 80% of the participants were over 65 years old, and they're at high risk of progressing to severe COVID-19. So we got this data and we actually shared it with Theora so she could actually pick it apart. So Theora, what were some of the key findings based off of when we showed this MUE to you? Yeah, it's a really fascinating MUE. And I think it really highlights, you know, again, in this post-EUA era, how are we using this drug for our COVID patients? And what I found really fascinating and probably true to most practitioners is who was getting the drug or who, who was COVID positive when they were showing up in the hospital? And so what I found really fascinating is that in this particular MUE, which was was 100 patients, the vast majority of the patients, like overall, around 80% of the whole population, the patients were 65 years or older. And so if you think about that in context of COVID, in terms of risk factors for progressing to like severe disease, based on age alone, like 80% of these patients just meet the criteria for being at risk or bad outcomes, going to severe disease, which isn't consistent with all the trials that look at remdesivir, which tend to have a lower average age of patients, which again, age is like key when you're trying to survive this disease, unfortunately. And so I found this to be a very, very real world because a lot of patients that come in are tend to be more frail in this population too. There's a lot of comorbidities. So again, multiple risk factors for 
progressing to severe COVID. And so based on just the population at home, this is a good group of patients where you'd want to give these therapies. And what I thought was so fascinating is that the MUE looked at one of the key outcomes was improvement by day five. So when you're giving remdesivir, what we saw in the trials was that by day five, those patients seemed to do really well. Extending treatment didn't make a difference. So how were these patients doing that were really high risk, honestly? And based on this MUE, there, there was no statistically significant difference in improvement in these patients by day five, regardless of their O2 saturation. And so I found that to be fascinating. And it, it aligns with what the IDSA is saying, whereas like, well, if they're saturating well, they, they don't need remdesivir because I mean, this shows that they don't improve. But I found it really fascinating that the patients that were progressing that had that lower to O2 saturation, they, they didn't seem to do much better on the remdesivir either. And so an, an outcome I would have loved to have seen is, is if we extended that out to like day 10, did that make a difference? If they extended treatment, which based the other trials don't show that, but in clinical practice, this is usually when the doctor's like, well, let's extend it by five more days because we can do that and see if they get better if they don't improve by day five. And like IDSA or NIH, I forget which one has that soft recommendation that's like, well, you can extend it to 10 days if they don't get better by five. And so it would have been interesting in the real world in this population to see, did that make a difference in the frailer patients? Or not. And my takeaway from this MUE, and thank you for taking the time to explain. I actually take it to my day to actually look at the MUE. Yeah. Um, it, I try to look at trends for the standard of care treatment. So I looked at like the vitamins and things like that. That was a logistical nightmare for me. What I thought was interesting was, you know, because like doctors didn't know whether to order it based off of procalcitonin or CRP. And what I noticed was that procalcitonin was basically like a no-show for the most part, but CRP was pretty significant and CRP is important to us because as we get to our next episode, wink, wink, that lab value plays a toll. So if our clinical folks out there, I definitely fight to make sure that uh, a CRP level shows up on that initial remdesivir order set. Wink, wink. But, um, and I know one of the biggest other controversy with remdesivir in general that actually wasn't in this MUA because it was, it was one of the exclusion criteria was the use of patients in the EGFR of less than 30. Um, are there any new recommendations on that, Theora? Yeah. Unfortunately, using remdesivir with patients with impaired renal function defined as an EGFR less than 30 is still one of those gray areas. If you look at the package insert, which was the FDA approved document for the use of remdesivir in COVID, it clearly states that it's not recommended in patients that meet this EGFR cutoff. And it's mostly based on really early PK studies that were looking at like how this drug was cleared in, in humans, essentially. And remdesivir itself is not really cleared renally, but remember it's a prodrug. And what they found was the active metabolite is present in urine about in about 50%, um, demonstrating that the active form is renally cleared. And to kind of compound that theory that it could potentially accumulate if patients are unable to clear it renally, is that it contains a cyclodextran type additive in the IV formulation, which we know from other drugs, like I can't think of any right now, but anyway, we know based off of other drugs that this can accumulate in patients with renal impairment and can propagate adverse events, which we don't want in our patients who are already suffering from COVID. So kind of based off of that, it's not really recommended to use this, but again, in real world practice, we get into that. Okay. But I have to give the patient something scenario. Their cutoff is so close. Can I just give it? And so there've been some like observational type studies that have looked kind of at this. 
and have shown really in these patients um, with AKI who have EGFRs less than 30, who have stable CKD, some on dialysis, they really found that short-term use of this drug, so about like five days, 10 days max, there really isn't a big difference in clinically significant adverse outcomes by doing like laboratory monitoring for like their LFTs or things like that. Unfortunately, their Gilead, which create, which is the drug manufacturer for remdesivir, is enrolling right now for a pharmacokinetic study for remdesivir. And so hopefully through this really robust trial, we'll have more data about like actual kinetics of this drug in sick patients with COVID. And we can finally answer the question of, can we give it in these patients? And is like this risk really clinically significant in the short-term use for these COVID patients? So hopefully in the future, we'll have the answer to that. And that's one thing I want to reiterate in the MUE that we were just going over. It was relatively safe. Like it was a handful of situations where LFTs were elevated, but it was a very, very sick population in that MUE. So that's a thing. It's like, we don't know we, we know it works. How well does it work? We can't really answer that confidently, but at the same time, it's safe. So it's like, uh, but Jimmy, can I go on my soapbox? The cost. That's one thing we didn't talk about. <laughs> so it's like over 500 bucks for a vial and the loading dose, right? It's 200 milligrams on day one and then hundred milligrams every day for up to five days thereafter. So it's six doses, $3,000 right there. Um, only one wholesaler can get it to you. Um, and I'm actually curious how you guys are actually dispensing it at your sites because the volumes fluctuate, like it kills my VTEX when we had to compound it. So we actually began to cap it and it actually seemed to work out very well. So I'm curious, like how you guys are dispensing this drug in your hospital. Nope. <laughs> you want me to go first? Um, I'm not sure about the logistics of how we're compounding and dispensing it. Um, but I know that we essentially have like a par level based on like scary COVID numbers. And I, we I, really, did the want same. To like, I really want to lower that because we knock on wood have not been really seeing patients in my area, which has been nice. But um, yeah, in terms of operationally with this drug, um, it's been less of a headache than like the MABs with things changing in terms of how to compound it or what infusion rate you give it at or who's getting it. It's been pretty consistent for a while now. So our IV room has gotten very comfortable with compounding remdesivir and our order entry pharmacists have got very comfortable with the whole process. Like at my facility, it's restricted to ID. So ID has to approve using it. And so our pharmacists have got very good at evaluating patients and doing all of that process. And our providers, like thankfully all of them, the hospitalists, our critical care um, specialists, everybody's been really good at sticking with the EUA way to use these drugs. We really haven't been giving it to patients with EGFR less than 30. You know, it's, it's, everyone's been really good with this drug. And so knock on wood that continues. Um, my biggest annoyance with this drug though, is that they never study it without like, I really want to study where you compare remdesivir to like, to just like dexamethasone because answer the question. <laughs> if like, we really need both drugs. It's just what I want to know. It's always, no, you Save have it. to This is a safe space. <laughs> yeah. You have to give it with dexamethasone and all the trials, but it's like, do you, can we really just see remdesivir by itself really against just like the steroids answer the question do we really need remdesivir because antivirals are very finicky um for those that have ever had to deal with treating viral infections um and so 
And I'd be curious to see what happens with remdesivir in the future as the, the virus evolves, because the mechanism of action, while it sounds really cool, this is um, the DNA substrate fake out is how we used to primarily combat HIV um, until the virus got smart and stopped picking it up. So who knows if we'll see that with remdesivir. So I would love continued studies with remdesivir, really looking at the efficacy of remdesivir by itself. Um, because we don't really see that anymore. It's mostly like standard of care, remdesivir, dexamethasone, plus or minus other things. Um, and so as the pandemic goes on and the virus evolves, I would love to see how this drug stands, you know, stands up against the evolution of the virus. It's, that is a question. So no, couldn't agree with you more. All right. Um, you know, that's all we have for this episode, straight remdesivir nuggets. Love it. Um, again, I'm Oscar Santalo, farm so hard underscore OS Oscar Santalo on LinkedIn. All right. And then y'all already know farm D and ED. <laughs> yeah. You guys definitely know, check us out there. All this stuff is going to be in the show notes and I have to say it guys, click subscribe, like comment. Let us know if you like this material because we need to know because we're all about helping you guys take it from brain to vein one day. All right. And, uh, and of course I want to give a shout out to our guest host today. Thank you, Theora. I really appreciate it. Uh, you want to give them your uh, Twitter handles so they can uh, reach out to you if they have any questions. Yeah, please feel free to reach out to me. I'm on Twitter at ID farm D and I'm also at LinkedIn, Theora Canonica. Pretty sure I'm the only one. So yeah, if you have any COVID questions, please feel free to ask. We're all in this together. It's just <laughs> won't end. <laughs> awesome. I appreciate it, y'all. Thank you, audience, for listening in and keep farming hard. Peace. Closes it. Ozzy scratches his head. Whatever she's looking for, it isn't in there. If you're looking for a good cause to donate, especially if you've been a recent athlete, please reach out and check the link that I have on the show notes to my buddy, Michael Stevenson. He's been really involved in youth sports in the Kansas City area. And what he's trying to do is get involved and help make sure more kids can play football. And what they need your help with is being able to donate some funds so they can pay for the equipment and things of that nature. So definitely reach out to him and I will provide the link for you guys. But if you're looking for a good cause to be able to help the inner city kids in Kansas City, definitely check out those show notes or reach out to Michael Stevenson. And again, all of that will be in the show notes.